Welcome to the Excellence in Enterprise podcast, where I reach out to people I do not know, engage with friends, all for the purpose of learning about them, learning about what they care about, why they care about what they're doing, what they're engaged with from across multiple different industries and multiple different vantage points and viewpoints, all for the purpose of increasing my personal knowledge and kind of thinking outside the box when it comes to my work, my professional career. I want to draw from those sources and I thought you might be interested in hearing as well. So I hope you will join me on this journey. You can find me on YouTube, on Spotify, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Feel free to reach out anytime. I'd love to engage with you. And I hope you enjoy this podcast interview um, engagement journey with me. Welcome back to another episode of Excellence in Enterprise podcast. This episode is a special episode because it's my first double digit episode. <laughs> it's episode number 10. And it's with Sylvia Menent. And a couple of the key takeaways that I had from this episode were one is how her career kind of shifted and changed over time. It wasn't something that she was, uh, finance was not what she was originally pursuing. And then second, I really enjoyed and appreciated her very vivacious uh, and uh, strong energy. It, it was it was fun talking with her. <laughs> and then third, it was cool to kind of get to chat with someone who had some different perspectives on uh, women in the workforce and then also how uh, being a woman in the kind of financial environment, some of the strategies and pieces that uh, she's been taking into consideration in how she kind of presents herself and her work. And so very interesting. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and I hope that you do as well. Let's get in the episode. At the beginning, I want to go back because, you know, I, I've you know looked at a little bit of your background and I've followed you on Instagram for a little while. I can't even remember how I found you. I don't know if you commented on something. If I came across a random reel, I, I have no clue. Um, but somehow I found you on Instagram, I think it was, and that's, you know, that's what, you know, made me interested in reaching out. So I wanted to go back and because from what I could tell, it seems like you've had a bit of kind of a, a slow journey, not slow, but you know, a, a slowly growing journey towards kind of the financial piece of things. So I wanted to go back. What did you study kind of like, and if I, it looked like you went to two different um, colleges to get your degree. So like, what did you initially plan on studying and then why did you switch? Yeah. So that's, I'm a, so that's really good for So it all started out um, with the, I originally went to college in Spain. So right after high school, yes. my family, I'm originally from Spain. You can probably tell from my accent, but we moved back to um, from the U S and I moved back to Spain to do college there. So I went to Exotic. And during college, I studied like business. And then I did my master's in like finance. So it was, the college was the same one and then undergrad. Um, and right after that, I went to work for Credit Suisse with the rich Mexicans. So in Switzerland, right? Imagine working in Switzerland, in Zurich. And basically your clients have a minimum net worth of $50 million. And what you're doing is pretty much just spending $10 million here, 10, like $15 million there. Here's a million to, so you can buy your Ferrari. It was like literally like that. It was like in the movie. How did you get that? How did you get that? And for, for the record, my only reference to Zerk Switzerland is from the Bourne series, Jason Bourne series. Yeah. <laughs> but, but how, so how did you get that job? Like, how did you go from college student to working at, you know, 
with these high net worth individuals? Yes. So great point. So what happened was I knew, um, I basically, I knew a guy um, at Credit Suisse in Boston, uh, Gordon Greer and Jose, who are two friends of mine. And they were older and I was like, you know what? I'm an intern. I want to work for you guys. You guys are so smart. They're like in their 50s, 60s. I want to learn from you. You're like my dream. So they took my resume. Somehow it ended up in headquarters in Zurich. And all of a sudden, my former boss calls me. He goes, hey, we've got your resume. We're here in Zurich, Switzerland. And I was like, what? I sent it over to Boston. I was expecting to get an intern. So I was like, you know what? I heard horrible things about the Swiss saying that they're very strict. They're, it's a very boring city. It's horrible. <laughs> but I was, <laughs> I was like, I'll give it a shot. It's going to be a summer. I'm going to do an internship there. I'll give it a shot. But I had very low expectations of Zurich. I had heard it was beautiful, but I had heard that the people were very strict, very boring, nothing to do. And I went that one, that one summer and I, I fell in love with it. I mean, I had... It's the best place in the world, like hands down. That's, I'm trying to figure out how I can bring back my company and still be a U.S. citizen and live in Switzerland. I don't know. I'll have to talk to my tax advisor about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I loved it. I mean, I absolutely loved it so much. And it ended up that I, because I spoke Spanish, they were like, well, just put you in the Mexico team. It's the best team. Okay. And that's how it all kind of just started. Um, so okay. I was an assistant to a financial advisor there. So did you, so you didn't really, I guess the question, my, my other question would be, did you have an idea of what you were trying to do or was it kind of one of those where kind of opportunities sort of developed in front of you and, and that's how you ended up there? Like, did you have an idea you wanted to work in finance or is that just kind of the job you ended up getting through the internship? It, great point. So, and this is kind of where I'm skipping around, but originally I had wanted to go into marketing, right? I wanted, I was applying to marketing was what I understood. I wanted to work for, I was applying to beer companies. I never drank a beer. And <laughs> I was like, and so I remember, I think it was Estrella Dam, which is basically like the Coors Light or Heineken of Spain, right? It's a mm -hmm. big company. Everyone wants to work for them. And I had an interview with them and they were like, why do you want to work in marketing? Why do you want to work for the, our company? And I was like, honestly, I don't really know. Like I thought to myself, I'm like, I'm here because it's just what it is, right? You go into marketing, consulting or finance. That was what it was. And I ended up going into marketing and working for a biotech company because I, my father was in biotech. My sister was in biotech. So I got an internship at a competitor and, um, and I ended up really liking it. But what happened that summer, I was in San Francisco working for this biotech firm. And all of a sudden, I got to meet all these people that were working in Silicon Valley in technology. And it brought up the whole like finance space to that point. I was like, wow, this is super interesting. I would really love to do something like investing companies and invest in people that are a lot smarter than me, right? Because one thing that I knew was that when I was six years old, I realized that I was not very smart and that I would have to surround myself with very smart people. Um, and so that's a, that was a good like learning point. Um, so that's how I got into finance, actually, just because of all of that okay. thing. Gotcha. So you were you studied in, in Barcelona and yeah. then you went to work for the company in San Francisco, the, the biotech company, and yes. then you went to Credit Suisse after that. Yes. Well, I did an internship at JP Morgan right after the biotech 
company. It was just a quick little summer internship, really enjoyed it too. Um, but at that point, I believe that what had happened was I was at JP Morgan. It was fine. Somehow I got an internship at Credit Suisse a year later. Cause I was like, I, it was, you know, when you're like a freshman, you have to get all these internships. <laughs> so I got an internship and just ended up falling in love with Switzerland. And that's gotcha. why I ended up working for the Swiss bank. So it was incredible. Like the whole thing that you, if you, there's a great book that I highly recommend. It's okay. called geeks who can schmooze right okay okay and it's all about a, a credit swiss private banker in zurich switzerland and what it was like to work with these super ultra high net worth people and like it was crazy right i remember a client called me and they're like we just bought some gold like real physical gold and i had to open the underground basement and the, the <laughs> lock and the safe and like crazy. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So then how did you end up back in the U S so I ended up back in the U S so long story short, I did my internship in Zurich for three months, ended up getting a full-time application, um, full-time job, um, ended up taking that job that following summer after I graduated and um, I was there for about two years or so in okay. at Credit Suisse. Um, and I really loved, like, I honestly, I have an amazing, amazing coworkers. And I remember it. the thing was that I knew I wanted to have my own company. Like ever since I was nine years old, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, right, like it was the book where I was like, I have to have my own company. So I've <laughs> always, everything that I've done since the age of nine has been strategic, right? I was always like, oh yeah, long-term, long-term forever. Inside, I knew I was not going to be there. And so the reason why I left was because Switzerland and Credit Suisse and Zurich is a great place to start to like learn and internships. But in terms of like really building a business and the whole meritocracy that you have here in the United States doesn't exist. Like if you want to get ahead, it's about the time that you're there versus the accomplishments that you did. Yep. And I also wasn't getting as much client exposure as I wanted. Mm -hmm. So ended up coming back and working for Morgan Stanley um, in Boston. And there I had so much client exposure, right? Like financial advisors were like, yes, we have a Hispanic blonde and who's petite, like amazing. Everything that we need, right? Because it looks good for the numbers, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the minor, like, like it was great, right? I was like minority. I had like the CFA, like it just looked good. So mm -hmm. all these advisors had me like, Hey, come with me. So that's how I ended up coming back. Cause I just okay. had like a lot of the client exposure. Gotcha. I feel like I'm saying things that may be inappropriate, but, um, <laughs> no, you're good. No, 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 no. So I, I think it's important. And this is just my opinion, of course. Yeah. Um, but I, it's my opinion that one of the ways to learn from people is for them to be genuine. Right. Yeah. And it's one of the ways for other people to understand, you know, kind of how the world works. Right. And yeah. that's why people listen to podcasts. That's why people read books and you know, watch movies as they want to understand things. And yeah. like, if you're not talking about it, then people can't understand. So I, I did want to ask you if that, uh, if that environment bothered you and like personally, and then is that like, did, and, or were you just willing to put up with it because uh, you had your own goals? Like, how did you, you know, what were you wrestling with in, in, within that environment, given obviously the various pros and cons? Oh <laughs> that, my God, that's that a great, it's a great point. So when I was in Switzerland, I remember I was working on this presentation for a client 
And the client knew me because I was basically working. I was like the assistant of the financial advisor and they knew me. They were really excited to meet. And that following morning when it was time to present the presentation, my boss came to me and or my financial advisor like boss came to me and was like, you're not going to be presenting. I don't want you in the meeting Um, because he was I think he had like my personality really came across that it's not serious. Like I can be, because I'm laid back and I try to like make jokes, like it can actually be a negative connotation, right? And so my boss didn't like it. So he never like brought me in and that really bothered me. Like that really, really affected me. Um, Because on the one hand, I was like, I totally understand you have to be like, you have, you're dealing with people's money. This is not like a joke. But at the same time, I also never wanted to be something that I wasn't. So it was definitely something that I wrestled with. And I think that was definitely one thing like that dropped that said, I'm not going to be here forever like this. I'm going to leave sooner because I'm not going to get anywhere like with people like that. Right. Yeah. And it's funny coming to the U.S., um, it was completely different. Like advisors loved it that I was just like more laid back. It was a very good, especially because it was mostly older men. So having like a younger woman bring in and just have something a little bit more laid back was very, like I see like as a positive thing, okay. uh, but it wasn't seen that way where I came from in Zurich. So Gotcha. So even though it wasn't maybe as preferable to you personally as a woman in this environment, it still felt or was more, it was more easily enjoyable than kind of where you were coming from. Is that fair? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to be honest. I really do think that like coming to Boston, like I've never experienced like being a woman, I, you know, you hear all these things, being a woman is a disadvantage, being a Hispanic is a disadvantage, being heightism and lookism and like all these things, right? There's like um, crazy things, but I never felt that way at all. I actually saw it. It was a huge advantage. I actually even thought that I was taking away a lot of the men that were probably even better than I was but I had gotten the position because I was a woman. And I think um, it, it felt a little, like it kind of felt guilty because I, I believe that you should get ahead because of who you are. Like if a white male is better than me, he should be in the position. Like you shouldn't just hire me because I'm a woman and you need to meet your quotas. Like I've always really believed in that, but I do understand that, you know, some people disagree with me. So <laughs> no, I, that's okay. It's what makes the world go around. Okay. But that's also good to know. And it's good to hear that you, uh, at least due to your perspective, at least were able to have a positive experience. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. So you were at Morgan Stanley and then about a year and a half ago, you started your own Manent capital. Yeah. And so you're now you're doing your own business. So my question, I uh, want I want to get into your thoughts and perspectives on kind of markets and investment and all that, because I, I would love to uh, talk about that. I but love it. <laughs> I, I, I want to know and talk a little bit more about your business. So and and not just like and not just what do you do? I want to hear that to begin with. But then I also want to hear your perspectives on how you're growing it and you're marketing it. I know you mentioned like, you know, having working with a marketing team. I want to know all that stuff because I love business stuff. And that's yeah. those are the things that I love. So let's yeah. I want to get into that. But to start us off, what does Manette Capital do? Yes. So um, Manette Capital, we're a registered investment advisor in Massachusetts where we manage money Mostly for, I would say, um, like the, the high net, not high, super high net worth, like the fit, but high net worth individuals. 
and then from one pillar, right, it's where we're managing the money. And, um, you know, on days like last year, managing money was tough what, during <laughs> COVID, right? Imagine yeah. starting a business and many of your clients, like the, the market drops 30%. That was tough. Um, but they ended up, no, nobody has left me yet, knock on wood. So, I'm, nice, <laughs> I'm nice. a, so far, I have a 100% client retention. Um, that's on the one pillar. And then a new pillar that I actually started this year, and that's one of the reasons I've been more active on social media and, and Instagram, was to do the whole online course thing. So now I have, for the people that either don't have money that they want me to manage, because I get it, you don't want someone you just met managing your money or for people that want to do it themselves to really just teach them the, the principles um, to be able to do it themselves. So originally it started out with, I was, um, cr I created this course program. It's very like, it's, it's kind of like a done with you where we give you the material and then we have weekly calls to check in, make sure you're on the right track. So I just created that for more of the people that as like a stepping stone to my manage money clients. Um, gotcha. Okay. And that's how I think how we met, right? Through probably a reel that I have made. Something those like are that. All... <laughs> nice. Okay. So you're working, but so you're also working with a marketing team or company. Why are you, what, you know, what, what was your thought process behind, you know, trying to find one and work with one versus doing your own thing? And like, are, I assume you would do it again, but what are maybe some of the main takeaways or things that you're like, Hey, this has really helped in X, Y, and Z. Yes. So I actually have, so I have a, I'm working with, like, I have an assistant that I work with and she basically does all my posting. Um, she'll post like my reels and my, she'll do the captions and, and things like that. That's on the one side, but I did because social media has become specifically after COVID, but it's really become a pay to play. I've decided to start doing paid advertising just to really okay. ignite the power of social media but to like levels, right? And so I really think that I've, I spent, you know, all of this year and last year refining my message to attract that younger generation. And so I didn't want to start with running advertisements to, you know, a, a website or a funnel or some sort of product that wasn't, didn't have the messaging down, right? Because seven times out of 10, if someone doesn't buy your product or your service, it's it's because it's a messaging issue, right? It's not because the advertising was bad. Like a lot of the times that's just a vehicle. So I wanted help with that. And I literally just started, I started about uh, like this morning, I had a, a, a call with one of my like agency uh, that I met through a, a networking group for women. And we're gonna start like running ads to try to get more data. Right. Because okay. here's the thing. I, I, I've always wanted to do things organically. I was like, organic, I'm just going to start posting. And and at the end of the day, yes, that maybe have worked four years ago when there wasn't much competition. But honestly, it's it's just going to be such a long game of hustle. And I'm at that point where I've realized that if I want to be like a, you know, a 10 million dollar company, like, you know, one mil one million. That's my first milestone. One million dollar company. Yes. You have to start outsource or, or you have to start paying for your time. And the reason why, and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to pay for data. I'm going to pay for advertising and things like that uh, to at least get data through my website, through my products to see what, what is working and what doesn't. So, so far, super, I'm um, really, really good because I started running like Facebook advertising 
And what I've noticed is that like my advertisements were really good. My landing page for basically what I've done, just like a quick overview, I've created a, a funnel, right? So a funnel for those that are listening that don't really know, it's, it's basically like a mini website, but it's a way for a client to go through a customer journey without having like step-by-step, step, right? So the first step is they see my ad. The second step is they go to like a landing page where I invite them to a free training. So because I noticed I started doing free trainings last year during COVID, like live, and I got a lot of clients from them. So I'm like, okay, this is how it's working. You know, people, I'm decent at video. Um, so I'm going to try to like leverage that. So basically they go to a training and then they are invited to either book a call with me or to, you know, buy my product, buy my course. And so what I noticed through running advertising is that my messaging was clear, but my webinar at the beginning was very boring and people were dropping off. Okay. So I wouldn't have gotten that data if I hadn't run advertising or if I had done it slowly through a freaking organic funnel, it would have taken, you know, years. And with, you know, Facebook, I spent $400 and I got, I probably spent a little bit more than I should have, but I at least got that data saying, this is wrong, pause it, fix it, and let, let's redo it. So. Gotcha. Okay. That's an awesome perspective. Very cool. Yeah. That, that definitely <laughs> makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And so one of the, I was curious where, so how did you get your initial clients and then how has that kind of client acquisition process gone over the last year and a half? Obviously one of the most important things of any business. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the way cause acquisition has been, it's there, it's been very organic. So okay. when I first started, so I started my business in February, I did have some clients that came over with me. Um, so that was good. So I kind of have like a base, but for new clients, I, I just started doing, um, during COVID, it was a perfect time to be doing webinars about the stock market and what was going on. And people always, like people just were so panicked. They would come to any webinar. They had nothing better to do. They were depressed. So they would come to my 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 webinars. And I actually was, was really interesting. I started, I even if like 10 people were there, I would always get like one or two calls from those. Um, or like from like, hey, I saw you on a webinar, maybe like two weeks later. And they, they would contact me. Okay. So that was one way I was doing. Like I, I did a webinar for Mass, Massachusetts General Hospital. So I got some doctor clients from there. I did a webinar for my um, alumni school. So my school has an alumni group. So I got a, uh, an, a foreign South American client from there. Um, and I did another one for like freelancers from another group. And I got some like new business owners from there. It was all about me just providing like a training course of pure value. I wasn't even like, I know psychologically now there's all these psychological ways to do um, webinars, right? Like imagine and boom, boom, boom. I didn't do any of that. I was just like, here's pure, like, this is what's happening. This is my opinion. This is what you should do. Bye-bye. And then I would get a contact, not probably not right away, but two weeks later, being like, hey, we have a financial advisor. We're not happy. Can you take a look? And that's how it started. Um, okay. Very organic, though. Yeah. Okay. Well, but I mean, but it sounds like you were taking a lot of initiative and in, to kind of get the ball rolling and to make those webinars happen and all that. Were you doing that essentially by yourself, or were you working with a team or with an assistant? No. Or was so that just you. It was just me. I would get invited. So what would happen was 
they're like, we need a speaker to speak at our event. And then someone else was like, Sylvia, why don't you speak to us? Because it was COVID. The market was crashing. People were really scared and they were willing to listen to anyone that had an opinion. And it was a really good time for me to be in that market because when the stock market goes up, everyone thinks they don't need a financial advisor. I remember like everyone thinks they can do it themselves. But when there's a crash, like when your $50 million becomes $20 million and you don't know what's going to happen, you listen to anyone. You want to hear other people's opinions because of that. So I really, I didn't do it on purpose. I basically, people would reach out to me being like, hey, Sylvia, like want to do a, a math a speaker, whatever. And I was really scared because it was kind of like my first time doing it. Uh, but I loved it, right? Because the people that come to webinars are people that are really going to want to learn or, and they're not, it wasn't like with seminars where you put in a seminar and 50% of the people that come, they just want the free food, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. um, so that's what I loved about webinars is that like, I didn't have to give food to anyone and I could speak for, you know, 30, 40 minutes and then half questions. So that was great. Gotcha. Okay. So then who is your target audience? And, and why are they your target audience? Because obviously in terms of people with net worth, right, there's, yeah. you know, tens of thousands of them. And so, and, and then I want to, I'm curious about that answer. And then I'm curious how you tie that into your kind of marketing efforts through Instagram and things like that. Cause obviously most people on Instagram are probably not high worth individuals. So I, I'm curious, you know, how you see the connection there, but yeah. And great point. And so, so my target client is that. 100 to $500,000. I I've mostly it's been you um, designers like um, engineers and like not okay. um, creative designers, but like UX designers. Yep, yep. Actually, one of my clients, she designed like one of the she was on the team that designed like the Bumble platform, which is freaking nice. awesome, right? Like <laughs> I have some cool clients. And, and then I also have some like doctors, it's mostly and it's mostly like I started with only helping or, or like targeting women. But I quickly noticed that a lot of men needed help. And the thing that I've noticed specifically this year is that specifically men were kind of, um, they came from a place where they, 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 they kind of, it was like a pride, right? Like you, sh you should know this. You're watching all your friends trading stocks on Robinhood and you don't, you kind of ask you for help for your coworker, but then you don't really know what to do. So I started getting like men through that because they were kind of like, okay, I feel like I need someone to tell me what to do without the get rich quick schemes. Okay. And so I've been attracting, which is the people that I really like to work with is really that high quality, either physicians or, you know, types of designers, like young professionals, I would say young professionals in their late like early 30s to 40s okay. that are just confused and they kind of just like they need help um and and feel really like embarrassed to admit it that they don't really know what they're doing those sure. are really much the people and it's hard to get a man to tell you that he doesn't know what he's doing but uh <laughs> but yeah but it's it's fun it's people that feel like they're in the dark um with their mm -hmm. investments which so yeah, I started out helping women and then I quickly realized that I really like helping men too, maybe even more than women, to be honest, because they're just fun to work with. And I feel like I can really help them because they don't have like, they don't have that many women that 
can understand like how they are. And specifically okay. when you're a man, you have like a lot of, if you have, if you have a wife and kids, you have a lot, you have a lot of responsibility, right? Like, mm-hmm. and you can't really go to anyone to talk about that stuff. I don't know. I don't know Britain how it is for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just uh, me, myself and I so far. Um, but- <laughs> is it Jacob or Britain? Like what's your first name? Britain. And then my last name is Jacobson. Jacobson. Okay. Okay, good. I said it right. I was like, I know it's Britain, but yeah, I don't know. I don't, and maybe you can relate to this. A lot of times women, we have support networks and we have support groups, but men, you guys don't really have that, right? Like when you have a problem, you have to take it on yourself. You can't really go to people to talk about it. That's, that's a super interesting perspective. It's, it's something I've certainly thought about in the like within kind of corporate culture, at least in American corporate culture is we're far more likely to have a, you know, a mother support group. Like there's, there's no, there's no really such thing as a parent support group. And like they might call or a father support group. They might care, care, uh, call it a parent support group or whatever, but it's like mostly the moms that'll go. Um, And, and so that's, and I've noticed that like you mentioned a networking event for women and I was like, I can't think of any networking events that are for men. It's right. just like a networking event that probably have more men, you know, yeah. <laughs> or something along those lines. Um, and so, and I feel like, and again, I could be wrong, but I feel like most of the time, if you're branding it as for men or for white men or for whatever, right, it's like, it's like this, you know, like you can't believe you're blocking these other people out. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. And, and so exactly and obviously that. you can get carried away with being too strict and like not having an open mind and, you know, there's plenty of smart people of, you know, every shade and everything else. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do, I understand what you're saying and that is super interesting. Um, okay. All right. So when I, I think the other thing that I want to understand about, about your business and what you're doing is how does the, like, how does the fee structure work? Right. So obviously there's the course side, which I assume that's more yeah. of like a paid course kind of one and done sort of thing. But if yeah. like someone's working with you as their advisor, how does that, well, how, let me, for those people, so that people can be educated here and you can fill us all in. Uh, how does it normally work? Right. If I'm, you know, I've got some sort of normal advisor I found on Google or, yeah. you know, through my bank. So how does that work? And then what's the difference between that and what you do and how does that kind of play out? So it's very similar and great question and great point. Usually the way at a traditional bank, right? You go and you have an advisor and you give him like a million dollars and they'll charge you about 1% of that million dollars. So they'll charge you $10,000 per year for them to manage your money. And to be honest, um, that I, I feel like that's a good business model because you kind of have like the same interest as that person. Um, the, another way that they, at financial advisors would make money is through commission. They would sell you products, specific products. Um, and then you would pay a fee and that I'm against because you're probably going to, you know, sell the most expensive product, the one that pays you the highest commission. So I never liked that. Um, and then the third option is through financial planning. So you would charge a one-time financial planning fee of like, you know, $2,500 to $5,000 or so. And which is kind of like for someone to do a financial plan and then you can either implement it yourself or you can go to someone and they can implement it for you. So that's kind of like the traditional model. Now, my way of um, when I first started, I wanted to keep it super simple. And a lot of my clients already were in that like assets under management model Mm -hmm. where you just charge a fee. 
So I just took that. I took the same fee. I, I charged them um, whatever money they have and I charge them a percentage, right? Now, of course, my biggest clients, they'll have a bit, a smaller percentage sure. yep. so that they, you know, there's incentive to bring more assets to me for me to manage. Um, and, and also because sometimes like it just, I couldn't charge, you know, a $50 million client one, 1%, that's half a million dollars. And I just think that's way too excessive personally. Well, also, I feel like the other piece, not to, to, to speak yeah. for you, but I feel like the other piece of it, it's a similar amount of time and effort that you have to put into managing a thousand dollars versus managing $10,000 or a million dollars. Maybe even more time, because I'm going to tell you something. One thing that I did notice during COVID, a lot of my smaller clients, because it's everything that you have, you're much more, you're going to panic more, right? Like, you know, and it's, and so it tends to be that where I found a lot of the times the smaller clients is actually even more work than the bigger clients. Um, but yeah, like you said, it, it's about the same, it's the same work. Um, okay. And so, yeah, so I, I kind of did that. And then with my course, I actually, I set up like a one-time fee and then they do have the opportunity to keep working with me on, it's more of like a group setting because it's like lower fee. So gotcha. on like a group with weekly, basically what we do is on Tuesdays, we have weekly coaching and they'll come together and they'll ask questions. And it's really cool because you get to see different perspectives of people, right? Like, you know, one's uh, like someone, maybe she's like working in, someone is working at a hospital. Another person is working uh, for the government. Another person is like, so we have very different, it's all basically people that are young professionals, very driven that want to get ahead of this before it's too late, but that are like those. And so I, and that's like a monthly fee going, you get two months for free once you start, but then if you want to continue, you will have the option to continue. Okay. So it's a, it's a paid community to some extent Co or another. Correct. Exactly. Okay. And I try to take, right. I really liked, I saw, I've always tried to bring innovative things to my business model um, instead of like the typical AUM thing, just because I want, I like the whole membership model, of course. Um, and I wanted to bring that over. So. No, it's super interesting. One of the things that I've, one of the thoughts that I've had in observing your, your content and, you know, checking out your website and your reels and stuff like that is, and, and maybe tell me what you think of this, but it, it feels yeah. like you've been trying to apply, um, millennial or, you know, Gen Z, Gen Y, et cetera, like marketing techniques to kind of traditional finance, you know, planning essentially. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Totally. Okay. Yes. Because it's not attractive. Um, actually, a lot of the, my clients, they came to me because they were like, I, I interviewed, I found you through the CFP website and I interviewed a couple of advisors and I felt like I didn't understand what they were saying. I didn't resonate with them. And I just felt like you had, like, I liked you and you're a woman and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so like, that's one of the reasons I think they came to me was because it can be very, if you don't, if you're new to this whole finance space, it's really overwhelming and scary already, not to mention for someone to pick you up in a mahogany office and you're like, what's this going to cost me? You're looking around like, this is very, <laughs> you know? Um, so yes, that is totally correct. Okay. And you mentioned one of the points I was curious about is how are you getting over the hurdle of people our age, right? The younger yeah. generation who've been exposed to the Robin Hood, who've been exposed to cryptocurrency, who've been exposed yeah. to like all of these 
you know, quick, fast, interacting with the market, jazz, right? How, how do you interact with them and help them appreciate um, index funds tend to be at least easier, but how do you help them appreciate things like bonds, things like, you know, treasury notes, things like that? How do you get them to understand and appreciate that versus just saying, hey, go manage my money, but I really want it in, you know, ARK Invest or something like that. Something I know, fast, exactly. <laughs> which it's totally, it has happened, right? It has happened to me where um, some clients were like, this bond thing is not going to do it. And we've actually, we've been out of bonds um, for the past couple of years, just because we couldn't, it was just a higher risk for us to be in bonds um, than to be in either cash or in like, you know, a much more mature and um, low, low octane companies. So we've actually been out of bonds just because of the low interest rate environment. Like it's just been a bigger risk for clients to be in that. And they've haven't been, you know, you can't meet your financial goals that way. However, um, it's a great point. I actually had a client who was in his seventies, who was like, just buy ARK Invest, just buy Tesla, just buy Zscaler. Right. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) like you're very successful and you know, you can, you can withstand the volatility, but you're only happy when things go up. And I always tell people that, that, it's very easy to get overly, like most people that have come to me um, now have been because they've been burnt out by the ARK Invest stocks and by these high octane stocks okay. and they're and by the Robinhoods because, right, they, they kind of started playing around with Robinhood. They were making money. It was going great. They thought they were on top of the world. And all of a sudden, the stocks, you know, all the technology stocks basically crashed, not crashed, but corrected. Tanked. Um, they tanked, right? Like they tanked. And then they're like, Sylvia, I need help. I don't know what I'm doing. And so when I explained to them, it's so funny because this is exactly what happened. I started explaining about the index funds, right? Like a lot of them are not like you think it's common sense. Most people don't even know that this exists. Like the, the that like ETF, I mean, they've heard maybe of ETFs, but it's not a big thing because and so I showed them like the VOO, right? Just like a regular ETF. And I was like, wow, you've got Amazon and Facebook and Google. Like, like you have a lot of the companies that you really like and you, and, and they were like, oh, wow, this is amazing. So like, these are exactly the companies I want to buy too. And I'm like, yeah, and you've got this. And then you have a little bit of everything. So I think it's been for them like a relief to know that you don't have to be like on Reddit looking at what's going to be the next stock, you can actually just buy one index fund and actually be smart about it. Right. Because I think from our perspective is that if you don't come from the finance space, you think that the more um, complicated and crazy investing strategies are going to be the more successful, but data shows otherwise. And so it's showing them the numbers, right? I'm all about data. I'm the, not a woo-woo person at all, right? I think that's maybe why I get along with men because I'm very direct. Um, I'm not at all, but I show them the data. I'm like, listen, if day trading stocks was going to work and it, it was shown to work, I would tell you to day trade. I'm not, but I'm going to show you the data and I'm going to tell you what works. And I'm going to, and I, but I, I play a lot with the emotions, right? Like I try to make them aware of how we can be our own worst enemy, and I think that has been very, very eye-opening for a lot of these clients. Um, and 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 I always and literally just right before this, I have a client who's in Dubai, and he's like, Sylvia, I'm looking at brokerage accounts. Um, which one should I open? 
And he told me one and I opened the app. I'm like, this looks like a freaking slot machine casino. You're staying away from that. And he was like, yeah, I don't like that. Cause so I think people are the people that are coming to me are the people that are scared of the whole Robin hood casino thing. They're like, okay. I don't know what I'm, you know, which I, and there's a lot of people that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they, they certainly haven't been helping themselves recently. Yeah. Do you use uh, Robin hood? Uh, I did like, <laughs> For the last couple of years, but yeah. um, I haven't. I, I didn't really have much in there because I just bought my um, my condo last year, and yeah. so like I liquidated my Robinhood stuff for that, and yeah. then I haven't like gotten back in since the whole deal. I did get like four or five of the other apps um, and accounts just to see what they all work like. What's Sophie like? What's public like? What's you know? Um, yeah. And I I tend not to enjoy them too much. I think the thing that makes it a little annoying. One, I do appreciate the fractional investing part. Uh, that that that's nice. Um, yeah. But in general, it's annoying because I want to be able to manage kind of like everything in one place. And like often it'll be like this has this perk, this has that perk. Most of the time, and none of them. This is the, I guess the big biggest unfortunate part is none of them have the nice user interface that Robinhood does. That's exactly um, right. And I don't understand that. It's like how hard is it to just make a nice user interface for something that someone already did? Like you just have to copy it. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't true. understand that. Um, but that's that's so, yeah. that's a conversation I had with a client. I was like. He's like, I was telling them about Robin Hood and how they were making their money off of inflating a lot of the prices. And he was like, yeah, but the interface is so beautiful. And I'm like, I get it. I, I use Schwab. The interface is horrible, like absolutely <laughs> horrible, but they make it up with their customer service. Right. And I get it too. But these companies are so old and it's so hard to just like create. I can't. Yeah. Uh, which is why Robin has been so successful. Like, you know, if you make things simple, people would get attracted to it. Yeah. No, I, 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 a lot of the older people, the older institutions want to attack Robinhood for, or I think want to attack them with, you know, they're gamifying it, this, that, and the thing. And they are, but like, that's mostly just to get people to, you know, open the app. The reason people use the app is yeah. because it's super easy and simple and yeah. it makes sense. And so like, and it's beautiful. I, I'm going to admit it. I'm not a Robinhood fan. And I've said it before why I don't, <laughs> You know, I want people to disclose their business practice, but they have a beautiful interface. I have to give it to them. And they've yeah, done a yeah. really great job from like a marketing perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. So let's talk about kind of the current environment and your thoughts. Um, oh my God. Current environment. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so so I, I think the, where I want the, the first question I want to ask within this is what are the things that you pay attention to on a daily basis or weekly basis? So for some people, they're staring at AMC stock all day today, right? Are you staring at AMC stock or what are the things that you're staring at most of the time? Oh my God. Great question. No, I'm not staring at <laughs> AMC stock at all. I look at themes, right? I look at the big picture. Most of my clients, we restructured a lot of portfolios last year to really put position ourselves into this new era, the new, you know, the digital innovation era where okay. I really do believe... I'm a big fan of Kathy Wood of ARK Invest, right? So I do believe that it's the companies that uh, invest in their R&D, invest in their, in their products and in their companies instead of paying out in dividends. I think those are the companies that are going to make it. Yes, now technology is totally um, out of, um, we've been a correction and I, it was healthy, very healthy correction. But in, in general, I'm still in, that's really my investment philosophy is 
you need to understand where we're heading. However, in the way that I'm a little bit different than Kathy Wood is that I still want to see profits, even if the company is investing, right? So what I don't want to see, I love companies like, for example, Trade Desk. And just for compliance, I, I, anything that I talk about is not a recommendation to buy and sell. I have to just say that quickly. <laughs> not investment <laughs> but, advice. Exactly. But like, for example, Trade Desk is a company that we used to own. Um, and I think it got a little bit ahead of itself because it, it, it but it was a company that is still growing. It's in the digital uh, advertising space, which let me tell you, that is only going to go up, I think, in my opinion. Um, and they're profitable, right? So it is possible to be profitable and still invest um, and still grow in, in a very like well-sustained way. So that's a little bit of my kind of big picture investment philosophy. I think Kathy Wood is very smart. I do think though that obviously ARC, it's been 10% Tesla and Tesla has been driven by the Robin Hood. So I am a little bit like, that's one of the things where I'm like a little bit iffy about but in general, I'm always looking about what is coming. Like something that's really interesting to me is um, where like I'm always looking at the next big trend. Right. So I don't know if privacy is becoming a big deal, a big deal. I don't know if you saw with the iOS updates where Facebook now asks you, can you want this person to track you, blah, blah, blah. So and 90% of people are saying no. Are saying no. I totally. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I've even heard some something like only 4% have opted in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. Like crazy. Right. And and so we're become we're going to a place where it was completely unsustainable for someone to be able to have so much data about you. Um, and now all of a sudden you're able to um, we're going back in time a little bit with that. And so privacy is like a really big theme that I'm looking at, right? Privacy, cybersecurity, anything that has to deal with protection of the consumer, that's kind of where we're heading. And so when I look at companies and um, when I'm looking to invest, I'm always positioning it. Like it's at the end of the day, it's kind of common sense. Like what is happening, right? Another thing that we were talking about earlier, audio, right? Audio, you're looking at Spotify, you're looking at Amazon, all these companies. Um, I think Facebook is gonna buy, buy Clubhouse personally. Like audio is going to be really the future because we've seen that people don't have the attention spam to sit and do nothing for an hour and watch a video. Whereas, yes, they can, you know, drive a car and cook dinner and listen to a podcast like this. Like, really, I think podcasting is going to be bigger than it's ever been. Um, and so you, when you're looking at companies that way, you also like who is investing in these types of things and types of markets, not, not just like AI, like everyone is saying. Yeah, um, it's kind of the next generational uh, media content. There's been a lot of talk about yeah. that in the space. Yeah, and I, I don't, I don't buy old energy companies. I, I still don't. And the reason why I don't do that is because you can already a lot of these companies. You're like, you're, you need to be well diversified, but that doesn't mean you have to be an idiot and just buy blindly. I think index funds are great for people that are starting out. I really do. I think it's better than just blindly trying to buy here and there. But if you're managing money for people, you have a duty to try to, you know, yes, I understand that 85% of portfolio managers underperform. I get it. Um, but we've been done, done really well because we've kind of, we just seen where the market is headed and, and we stay the course. Like, yeah, the market corrected 30, you know, 20% for a lot of these technology stocks, 30%, but we stayed the course. Um, and I think that's where we kind of come in and remove that emotion out of you.
mm-hmm. uh, which okay. is what's going to make you successful. But yeah. And I'm also looking at inflation. So that was my next question. Or one of my <laughs> two next questions is what are your thoughts on inflation? And I'll tell you my thoughts. I want to um, hear your thoughts first, <laughs> by the way, I have like 10 minutes left. Just I, I know I, I, I okay. keep glancing at the clock. We'll, uh, perfect. We'll, we'll Not right in. Um, so yeah, so my, my quick thoughts are, I don't think it will be as bad as the, you know, the, the main people that are concerned about it think. And the reason I think that is one is I think a lot of it, um, has already in terms of the money that's already been spent, has already been priced into the stock market, which is why the stock market maintained relatively substantive growth and consistency throughout the pandemic that was screwing everything up. And then second is I think a lot of the inflation numbers or substantive percentage of the inflation numbers that we're seeing to date is caused by supply and demand issues um, that I think are across the whole entire global supply chain. Um, And then third is a lot of the money that's been lent has been to the banks who are not actually lending at the rates that they have been in the past. And so that that money that's been spent is not actually in circulation. And so, and I don't think that they banks plan on putting it into circulation and that's, and you can see like month over month, the number of loans that have been made by banks has like been, has been less and less over the last, like, I think it's like six months or something like that. And so like, that's why I don't think it'll be bad. I think there'll still be some, and I think we'll see more. I think it'll, you know, flatten out for a little while, but I don't think it's going to be this, you know, 8%, 10% or something like that. I, I totally agree with you. And you bring in a great point about the banking is that a lot of these banks as well, like we've never seen a stronger economy than it's ever been. A lot of these financial banks, they've actually have way more reserves than they um, expected because less people have actually defaulted on their loans. And so I really think it's going to be transitory um, that it's, we're going to see it right now. As soon as people are out, like right now, everyone's out about spending money, going crazy. It's normal. It's that's what's, it was going to happen. You know, people just woke up and, you know, they're a little bit on, on a high side. Um, but I do expect like in the next year or so, to things to start stabilizing again, because um, people are not, uh, they say that wage growth is gonna be a little bit stickier and it's gonna be harder. Like, I mean, I, everywhere I go, I go to a Dunkin' Donuts, I go to a, what what have you, everyone's trying to hire. And what's it's really crucial to see how people are just, the companies, they can't, they're competing with unemployment. It's, it's normal to see this sort of inflation. And so, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I definitely agree on that. I definitely am curious. One of the things I'm most curious about is what will happen in the job market between the remote work thing, between people having left all kinds of cities and moved to all kinds of other cities and that whole, you know, migration situation we've had over the last year and a half. Uh, I'm definitely, I think that that'll have a more permanent impact on what like the next five years of so of business and growth is going to look like, or I guess the, I should say the business environment is going to look like than maybe necessarily inflation or some of these like more even policy changes and things like that, that have been discussed, but we'll see. <laughs> no, it's a great point. Um, so it, I, yeah, it's going to be interesting what happens to wages. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Final question so that you can jump thoughts on crypto. And do you consider, do you think about, we could probably do a whole podcast about this. I know um, we should, think, we should do our next one. <laughs> I'm down. I'm down. Um, <laughs> do you think about crypto as a financial tool? Do you look at it as a, just a distraction period, or do you look at it more from the kind of the technology web 3.0 standpoint? 
I see it as the third one, really more of the blockchain. Obviously, I think blockchain is here to stay. That's definitely not going to go away. I'm not, I do own a little bit of uh, Bitcoin um, through GMTC, through the indirectly, through it's a trust. Um, And my clients as well, like we do own it because I do, I do think there could, there is potential, but it is, the, the thing is that scares me the most is that it's still not widespread, right? And I think people can say it's the future, it's the future, it's the future as many times as they want. But at the end of the day, unless it's, actually utilized by most people and most people actually believe it like would you trade all your money for bitcoin no like right and i think most people aren't and i think until it becomes a safe currency or safe reserve until it becomes that like that safe currency reserve where you're like yes let me give you my us dollars give me bitcoin um i don't think it's gonna be like it's, i think it's still gonna be a long time specifically with regulation i don't i think i'm i'm looking at Bitcoin from like the blockchain technology. What, what about you? I I agree. Um, I actually, the podcast I did before this one was with a software developer uh, so I could try and understand more about blockchain. We want to do like a, a second uh, a, a second episode talking specifically about the technology and what you can build on it. Yeah. Because I, I think that between regulation and government perspective is like the reason the government hasn't done anything is because a they're old and they don't understand how it works (laughs) and b is because they don't see it as a threat to the dollar and i think as soon as they do there will absolutely be regulation taxation and all kinds of stuff um and i don't see it being you know moved around widespread and i don't believe that the technology has the capacity through proof of work or proof of service um, to handle the transaction speed that is necessary. And, you know, like, again, today, the reason the financial current financial system works is because it's fake numbers. And then the money kind of follows it three days, five days later. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I don't think that unless you do some version of that on Bitcoin, which is kind of like, what's the point of Bitcoin if you got this fake version anyway, other than the anti-inflationary um, standpoint and limited you know, number of coins. I, I don't really see it being a replacement for that. And I think that that's what you need if you actually want A, mass adoption and B, for it to be you know worth use. But the other thing is the problem with that is Bitcoin counters its own argument by saying the price is going to go up. So like if the whole point is for you to buy into it as an asset that's going to increase like Michael Saylor does through MicroStrategy, right? Yeah. Like if that's the whole concept, then you can't also at the same time on the other side of your mouth say, yeah, we're going to buy and sell and trade in Bitcoin. It's like, no, you don't do it with gold. You're not going to do it with Bitcoin or you are going to do, you know, and slash you can't do it with Bitcoin anyway. So yeah. I feel like they make the one argument in effort to like prove, you know, push mass adoption, but it doesn't actually translate to their actual investment strategy or thinking. Totally. People are buying Bitcoin simply because it's going up, not because they actually understand the underlying value, which kind of there isn't. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Gold only works because there's, you know, however many thousands of years of history supporting it. Um, And the likelihood of Bitcoin just coming in and replacing that is like pretty, pretty tiny. I know. I'm, Not to mention I'm, the distraction of a thousand other coins. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Ethereum, <laughs> Dogecoin. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. So, oh. Okay. Well, this was super fun. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. I, I'm super happy. I love talking to you. I have you know, certainly more questions and we'll have to, we'll have to stay in touch. With the yeah. Well, no, we have to do a part two. If it, if it does well, if your viewers like it, we can do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. <laughs> small, small but strong. We're, we're, we're growing. We're I'm going to share it everywhere. So. <laughs> Sounds good. I will. Yes, I will tag you and everything, and uh, we'll go from there. Awesome. Thanks so much, Britain. Right, Have a nice care. rest of your afternoon. You too. You too. Bye.